0: Figure out what your ideal life looks like, what radiology for you sparks joy, how you see yourself as a radiologist, and build your life around that career that you want to have.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report Podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. This is a really special one with Ben White. Dr. Ben White is a practicing neuroradiologist and associate program director at Baylor University Medical Center. Dr. White obtained his medical degree from the University of Texas Medical School at San Antonio before completing a radiology residency, and neuroradiology fellowship at UT Southwestern Medical Center. In addition to his clinical work, Dr. White shares his thoughts on radiology and medical education on his blog benwhite.com. If you're not a reader of his writing or his tweeting, uh, you're really missing out. He provides a welcome, fresh perspective that is thoughtful and unafraid in radiology. And you know, I've been a big follower and fan of his work and friends now for some time. And sadly, You missed our first conversation, which was lost to the ether of the internet. It was one of our earlier podcasts and the recording blew up. And so you're getting version 2.0, which will be a more polished and professional version. But uh, Ben, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for that kind introduction.
1: So uh, tell us about your background. Where are you from? How did you find your way into radiology and kind of what brings you to present day?
0: So I was born in New York and I moved to Dallas when I was nine. Then, you know, grew up my formative years here, went to Harvard for undergrad. My wife and I applied to med school together, went to San Antonio, uh, for medical school and then back to Dallas to be in our family for training Evermore and ever after. So we've been here since 2012, raising our family, doing our stuff. And that's how I got here. And in terms of you know, how I got with the writing and radiology and that kind of stuff, I honestly don't even know how any of that started. I don't even know why I'm a radiologist truly, really. you know, when you're a medical student, you have to pick, you know, your, your field, I was at a loss for what to do. And I almost picked it arbitrarily, and I I think I'm one of those people who finds good things and bad things and everything, and I kind of fell into radiology somehow, and here I am, and I enjoy it. But I don't have one of those great stories where like, oh, yeah, I had this deep passion for technology, and I just had to be this. No, it was really more random.
1: Well, a refreshing answer. Most people say it's because they like puzzles, I think is maybe the number one
0: answer. Video games are great. I mean, I don't know. This seems like a, a not real answer. I mean, I remember when I was a medical student, I when I was on trauma call, and I had a patient go to IR and get their liver embolized, and I remember telling my wife about the story about how it was really cool the guy got fixed without having a big surgery, and months later she was like, when I was you know, opining and whining about not knowing what I want to do with my life, she was like, what about the IR thing? That was cool. I was like, well, that was pretty cool actually, and that's basically it. And then I'm I'm not even IR right? I'm I'm a neurorad, so I do diagnostic work. So even that origin story. Doesn't explain how I got here. <laughs> I did not do that anymore.
1: So tell us about your current clinical setup. You're in a practice. You're doing academic work. Like, what is? How would you describe your setup?
0: So we have a very interesting hybrid um, practice model in Dallas. Here, I'm at a group called uh, American Radiology Associates, and so we are a large, independent, subspecialized private practice. So I'm a shareholder, I'm a partner in that practice, but we also have an academic. Kind of armed the practice where we have this long standing, you know, multi-decade long radiology residency we manage. And so my job is a combination of part-time teaching with the residents and trainees, which I love, you know, part-time going to a center and doing my own procedures and being in a strip mall and having strip mall food for lunch and that kind of thing. And then part of my job is at home, you know, reading from home and being able to do that. And so I, I love that I have that variety and flexibility in my schedule. I love the academic side. I'm not a big researcher kind of person. I love teaching. So I love that. But I also love that I get to work from home sometimes and get to work around town and see patients do my own procedures. So that happening, that combination has been really wonderful for me. It's kind of what makes my job interesting. I think any one of those things by itself would not be what I want. I would never want to be a telluridologist. I would never want to be pure private practice, I think. But I like the combination that I have right now. And so it's a great group.
1: Sounds like a perfect setup for a person like you with your varied interest, does everyone in the practice have to do teaching or do you have the different tracks? How, how does that all work out?
0: It's more, you know, we're big enough that it's more about interest. So it's like, you know, someone comes into the practice and they're interested in that, then they can get kind of put into the rotation where they cover the bases of the hospital where the residents are there. And if they don't want to do that, then they don't have to do that. There is plenty of outpatient work for us to do. And so a lot of people don't do any teaching at all. It kind of depends on your, on your needs. So really it is more a matter of, what a person wants to bring to the practice and kind of meeting them where they are, because there's enough people in the group that we can kind of meet people's interests where they are and, and accommodate that. So I like teaching. So I do a lot of it. Some of my partners don't do any, like literally none. So it depends.
1: And it's a really exciting model. It's a unique model. There's not that many practices out there that have that option. So imagine too, that's an appealing choice for the right type of person looking for private practice, but also the ability to stay engaged in teaching. It's an interesting time in radiology. I imagine every time in radiology has been pretty interesting in the whole evolution of of the field. So I'm glad this time isn't disappointing. Lots of trends, probably the top ones being sort of labor shortages, teleradiology, AI, maybe uh, reimbursements to name a few, certainly private equity ownership and, and corporatization. So we'll try and get through as many of these as we can. But let's talk labor shortage first. Cause you know, one of the first reasons I wanted to chat with you was you wrote an amazing article that everyone should read called The Radiology Shortages Here. How does this impact you day to day right now? And how have things changed since you wrote that article, if at all?
0: So I think the answer to it has it changed. The answer is it's continued. As to how it impacts me and my practice, you know, I'll tell you like it has been an impact in that. It's hard to recruit and it's hard to maintain even. I think the overall revolving door for practices has gotten bigger because people have been able to jump ship and have less accountability towards their, their partners or their kind of on the job ground because they are able to now take these tele positions as a kind of backup option always now. So their BATNA to working in a regular group has changed a fair bit. And so it's, I think it's been a very big challenge for big groups to do that. And I think if you're a, you know, a 10-person group and you experience 10% imaging volume growth, you need to hire one person. You know, that's not a huge ask. You know, if you are a hundred person group and you grow 10%, you need to hire 10 people. But really, actually, probably more than that because at that size of a group, you're going to have attrition, right? You're going to have people get sick, get married and leave, leave town, retire, et cetera. And so it's really challenging, I think, to kind of grow at that size in the current market. When you think about like my group in Dallas, we have two other big groups in Dallas. Like between all three groups, you might need you know, like five, 10% of the whole radiology output of trainees for an entire year to just staff the city of Dallas. And that's just not feasible. And so ultimately, I think it has been quite a challenge to, you know, get staffed up and, and meet volumes. It's not easy. We're all working harder than we otherwise wanted to, I think, to a certain extent.
1: I want to talk about this loyalty piece for a second. You mentioned, you know, people's alternatives have changed. Used to be kind of, you're a partner, maybe you have some ownership in the building, maybe you've got some sort of non-compete that, you know, prevents you from going to the neighborhood practice. Those might've been some barriers around loyalty. I'm I'm kind of curious why you think loyalty has eroded in the private practice model.
0: I think it's multifactorial. I think part of it purely operationally is that now that teleradiology is such a big part of the workforce, that it's very easy to leave your job, even if you don't want to move away. So used to be, you know, you'd have to move, uproot your family. To change jobs now, you don't have to. Even if you have an on compete that you don't want to fight, you can just work remotely for a couple of years and wait it out. So that is a, a real reality for most people that they can do that. And so that's part of it that they it's just it's just possible, right? It's not hard to do. I think another big part of it was that the the wave of PE buyouts over the past decade, especially kind of earlier on, I think soured a lot of trainees to private practices because they were always worried that their groups were going to sell, and many did. You know, there was a big bit of a rug pull. Situation with that, so I think people got kind of a little bit soured to that, and got kind of less credulous about the model of starting a job, working your way up, and you know getting benefits from that. And I think the other part of it is that in the fight against corporatization, a lot of groups got very big. They kind of had to get too big to fail to try to be safe against you know corporate takeovers and buyouts and whatnot. And whenever you have a group that gets too big or it gets bigger, right, you're going to have some cultural attrition. You're going to have a little bit dilution of what makes the group, the culture that it is. And I think when you're, you know, one person, a hundred person group doesn't feel like a family the way it would have had if it was one person in a 20 person group. And so between, you know, the reality on the ground of the uncertainty of AI and mid-levels and corporate healthcare and all that kind of stuff, and with the recent track record of kind of not super great stewardship of private practice by private practices, combined with cultural dilution, combined with really decent competing offers from teleradiology firms where people don't want to drive anymore after they got used to being at home during COVID all of that combines to make it just a very different kind of, you know, buyer's market for being a, you know, hired gun radiologist to a certain extent.
1: Yeah. I think those are all, those are all right. And it's, I just heard a, a quote of, about growth that is sticking with me as you're talking about this, which is that you know, the natural state of the world is growth is good and you can just keep growing forever. And then the counterpoint was like, you know, humans can't like just keep growing. If they grow to be 10 feet tall, their legs will break and then that's it. And so (laughs) hearing about the idea of a hundred percent private practice needing to hire 10 people per year, you know, that's a whole
0: competency
1: hiring 10 people a year. That's a team, that's a staff, that's a big investment and, you know, that that hits margin and...
0: And you do that for a few years in a row and what happens, right? Then you're 140, 150. how, How does everything that you do as a business scale at that size, it stops being trivial. And I think you do go from a, a medium-sized group of 30, 40 people to these kind of 100-plus person groups. It's a very different kind of company. And the skills needed to run that company change a fair bit. And so it's not trivial. There's definitely a, a cost to the growth. And I think it's kind of interesting in radiology because, because there's been downward reimbursement pressure over time. There was a kind of a general, I think, goal for growth is that, you know, we're going to maintain our income by working harder. To make up for the downward reimbursement pressure, right? I'll get paid less per study. I'll read more studies. Stay flat. And I think during the you know 2010s we saw that happen. The problem is at some point you can't work harder. You can't squeeze more juice out of the lemon, right? And so what happened was people hit a plateau, and the burnout epidemic happened, and everyone got very unhappy. And then COVID happened. And people started to retire, and it kind of created a spiraling labor shortage where not only is there too much work to do people are kind of sick of doing it to a certain extent. And therefore, even when you do recruit, you know, let's say a new trainee, more of them, for a variety of reasons, maybe want to be an associate track. They don't want to be a partner track hire it might be because they want to make sure they don't take call They're like, yeah, not worth it to me, or they don't want to work nights and weekends. And so somebody who may have wanted to be, you know, a part track person taking call and working evening shifts. Now says, I want to work a four day employee track. And because all these groups are desperate to hire, They'll take what they can get. And so then you start hiring more people, but they're not filling all the roles you needed them to hire. And so even though you might say, I'm I lost when I'm hiring one, in many cases, the person you're hiring isn't even getting the same number of RVUs, same number of butts and seats as you actually lost. And so we are, I think, seeing still a worsening overall of the shortage because of that. You know, if you had people doing seven on seven off nighttime jobs before, and now the standard is seven on fourteen off. That math does not work in a labor shortage market. It's a better job. It's probably better for the patients. But in terms of you know butts in the seats, it's a problem, right? It, it just exacerbates the shortage. And so we continue to see this. Now you see some seven on 21 off night shots and seven on 14 off evening shifts. And again, it's a better job. Objectively speaking, it's probably a better job. Again, less burnout, better for the patients, but exacerbates all these trends. So it's interesting to see. There's a, comp- a book called Company One by Paul Jarvis. Where he talks about you know, growth is not always good, and, and essentially his business was a one-person business where he was keeping it purposely small because he wanted to have a business of his lifestyle-friendly. He didn't want to like have a huge company and employees and direct reports. He just wanted to do work. And I think sometimes what happens is we get to a situation where we need growth from some metric for either because we want to have a stable contract or be able to handle the work or whatever, and you realize that the cost of that outweigh the benefits. And I think we've seen a lot of groups now who are looking at their book of business and cutting contracts and renegotiating and saying, Hey, this contract is very high touch. It requires a lot of, you know, physical presence, a lot of stuff, and it doesn't pay that well. And in this market, I can't grow to meet that need. I'm just going to cut it. And I think we're just now seeing kind of the leading edge of a lot of frustration from medical institutions and hospitals seeing their business cut because they are not interested or willing to accommodate those groups needs. And I think we're seeing a, a big shuffle right now. It's just, it's just starting right now. I think it's the past year and a half has been very interesting to see.
1: Yeah. People have been talking about the impacts of this shortage on call it, accessibility and availability of imaging services. It's yet to be what I would call maybe mainstream Wall Street Journal news where, you know, your friend who's not in healthcare sends you a text and goes, whoa, what's going on? The only texts I get about that right now are about Prinuvo. They've really, uh, they, they really go on the mainstream.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. The whole body MRI. I am waiting for that story though, where the wall street journal comes in and does that. I'm, I'm waiting for that to happen because I do think we will see at some point a big hospital struggle to get coverage and it will become national news. And I think when that happens, that's when we'll potentially see more of the political discussion about solutions, kind of mandated solutions to the problem. But so far we're just kind of spiraling slowly. <laughs> I think as a field. So we'll see how it goes.
1: Well, so you mentioned, well, you know, the old had to go bankrupt slowly and then all at once, but on the workforce shortages side. So I'm going to RSNA, the answers are AI and, you know, that everyone talks about. And the answer that no one talks about is mid-levels. You don't think either are answers to the immediate shortage problem.
0: Uh, Why? Well, for one, they just take time. So in terms of, you know, what's going to help us next month, the answer is nothing. There is nothing coming next month to to make this needle move. In terms of the intermediate or long term, they both potentially solve the problem, maybe not in ways people want to have them solved, right? So I think in an ideal world, most people don't like the idea of having, you know, MPs and PAs be stewards of imaging services in this country. But certainly if the AI tools don't mature very soon to be helpful, then they very well might. Um, I think most people would like to see AI tools help us be more efficient overall. I think most people who want that, want that to happen in mostly non interpretive ways first, right? So I think a lot of radiologists don't really want to see studies read by a machine that doesn't make them feel valued part of the healthcare network. But for example, there's a lot of inefficiency in how we measure things, how we find priors, how we get histories, how we dictate You know, why am I looking at a technologist worksheet for an ultrasound and then vocalizing the numbers they measured out loud that is not efficient, right? So, you know, DEXA scans, you know, there's a lot of things that we could do to make people more efficient that don't cheapen the human component to imaging interpretation. And so I do think there is certainly room for these tools to help us be more efficient that will help us, you know, read more studies in ways that do not make the job worse. Right now, what I think people have been seeing mostly in the news is, you know, X algorithm is better than radiologist at reading this thing. And that doesn't make anyone feel happy or excited. And frankly, it doesn't even help you get the job done because until the thing is so good that it replaces you, you still have to do the work. And so if it doesn't help you do it faster, then it's not helping the shortage. And so ultimately having these tools give you, you know, a heat map or one more thing to look at actually slows you down. doesn't make you faster. And so we are nowhere near the point where those tools make you more efficient they don't help right now. We're probably several years away from them helping. And so I personally am more interested in these kind of non-interpretive tools that help the friction points of my job be smoother, because that would make me faster in a way that makes my job better, not worse. And that's where I think the sweet spot is going forward. And I hope we see gains on that domain, which isn't as sexy as I think a lot of people in tech like to make products for, but that would be very, very helpful. And certainly I think would get widespread adoption very quickly in the radiology field to move the needle before a legislative solution were to occur.
1: I agree with everything on the AI side. A very good friend of mine works at Cruise. You know the the GM owned driverless car. And I was super obsessed with driverless car when I was out in, in the, the Bay Area when it was it was just starting as a science experiment within Google and it was really exciting. And here we are, it's 2023 and cruise just got shut down because of some edge case scary thing where you know they were harming a pedestrian. And so, you know, here we are. There's a trucker shortage, there's a radiologist shortage, the AI is coming, but it's not here. And so okay, that doesn't help in the short, short term and you don't like the, don't like the idea of mid-levels is maybe too strong. You think the mid-levels are highly suboptimal were the words you used. Why, why does your group use mid-levels today for any sort of prep interpretation, anything like that?
0: We have them in IR like most people do is they help do kind of the uh, bread and butter kind of cases and they do some clinical work. You know, the problem with, with mid-levels is that if you've ever worked with residents, they don't necessarily help you very much for most studies. They're there to learn, they're not there to do the work. I have to do the work myself anyway. And so they only really move the needle a ton if they are doing things independently. And I think the reason why people don't like that as a solution is that having independent work from mid levels opens the gates to reimbursement declines, being sidelined by hospitals and whatnot. And we've seen other fields suffer at the hands of those approaches. And so it's not that you couldn't train a mid-level to do parts of my job as well as I can. I think that's probably not fair to say. It's that in doing so, you open up a a box that you cannot close again. And if we want to preserve radiology, which some people probably don't care if we do, if, if you want to preserve the kind of jobs we have and the kind of way we do it, the quality of care we provide with the training we have, then that would be a very big change to allow to happen to do that. And so I do think if you, let's say people say, oh, you'll have them read plain films. What happens when some rural hospital needs CTs for it overnight? Some state will give them practice authority and they'll start reading CTs. And you know, there, there's no way to, to lid that, honestly, over time. And then what I do worry about is a situation where I think with AI going forward, there's a, a real problem with automation bias that we've seen in other fields with pilots and whatnot. And I think we'll see it here where when the algorithms are good enough to get most stuff mostly right, you begin to rely on them a lot actually was a study came out a few months ago about breast imaging where they, it was a fake study where they put in a fake algorithm that basically read the mammograms. And what happens is the algorithm got a couple of them right in a row and would purposely get them wrong after a while. And what happened was if you saw them get the mammograms correct several times in a row, if you didn't have a lot of training, you're more likely to not realize when they were wrong. So if you were very well-trained, you figured out this is incorrect. I know this is wrong. I'm going to overrule the algorithm. But if you were a novice, you did not overrule the algorithm as often. And so what I worry about, people people will think the AI is great. We need a human involved. I'm going to have an AI plus a mid-level problem solved. And my concern is with when the AI has become more helpful, you need to be more trained. You'd be even better at what you do to be the human you need to catch the mistakes, to be so good that you're willing to overrule the computer that is usually correct. It is not an easy task. And I don't think a partially trained person is me the right person going forward to do that. And so I don't think the combination is what we want. I think mid-levels are one thing. AI is another. I think AI is coming. And therefore I prefer us to see an incorporation of AI tools in a safe and helpful way more than the combination of AI plus mid-level, which I think is a very easy business case to make, which is probably the the wrong choice for patient care.
1: Counter question. The AI plus mid-level example that I always think of is like I don't know, when you go into the ER and they're like, are you having, do you have a PE or do you have pneumonia? It's maybe the one thing they're trying to figure out before they can let you go home or something. Couldn't you just hit a button and it be like the pneumonia button. And then just, if you don't have pneumonia, you're good. Or are there so many other edge cases that you have to be able to catch when you get blood drawn for my kid or for me, you don't screen for 300 things. You screen for the one thing that you thought it might be. That's the one thing about radiology that I've never really understood is, you know, why can't you just say, I am worried about this one or these three specific things. I'm going to run this.
0: Yeah. It's the corner case problem, right? So when you look at people who get sued for x-rays, it's usually the unintended incidental findings. It's the tumor at the lung apex that nobody saw. It's that kind of stuff. It's not usually, oh, a person didn't see pneumonia on a pneumonia scan. It's almost never the actual problem. Um, it's usually stuff. For example, like let's say someone comes in and they have you there for pneumonia, they actually have a spinal infection, their mediastinum is wide, you know. So it's not going to be the lung fields are abnormal, it's actually some other finding. And so the problem is you need to have an algorithm that does all the things, right? You don't just need a lung out, you need something that does the whole thing. Again, and that's probably fine for most things. And to a certain extent, I agree with the argument that, you know, because we're so busy and we've really moved so much to cross-sectional imaging that we aren't doing a great job with plain films anymore anyway. And so can you make an argument that if we're doing a bad job on plain films, then why don't we offload those things to an AI plus a mid-level? And there's probably not most cases that are gonna have a problem with that. It'll probably work most of the time. The question is what misrate are we comfortable with as a society who is responsible for handling the malpractice that's a big problem of that?
1: Well, I guess maybe what I would phrase differently I think this is more of a litigation solution is just, do we need to change the rules of the game, which is that, you know, this is a screening exam and you have to pick the things that you're screening for. And these are the things you're screening for. And you know what? You came into the ER at midnight with a cough. We're not screening you for a tumor. That's not why you're here. And, you know, go see your primary care doctor and you can go get a workup after the fact if, if we don't diagnose your
0: problem. It's tough. There's a lot of overlapping clinical scenarios though. For example, I mean, there's always a classic radiology joke about, you know, people getting CTAs of the whole body when they come in for, you know, PE and aorta and belly because patients are not very good at localizing their own findings, right? A lot of diseases make you feel terrible in vague ways. And so the problem is we can't really rely on clinicians to know what they want in that context, especially with the mid-levels. If you look at the ordering patterns of experienced ER doctors versus mid-levels providing ER care. The mid-levels order more studies because they, they really don't know how much they want to narrow down their focus and they ch- generally tend to order more imaging and so ironically enough we've moved to a world where more people get imaging for undefined reasons and get more of their kind of chronic care done in er's anyway and so the ability to say we're going to triage this you're in an the er therefore you get only er type care is convenient intellectually and practically but it doesn't really work for patient care very well because so many people get their care in the ER. And so many times it's like, I'm ready for PE. But really, if you talk to the patient, they actually have weight loss and all these other things, simply not PE. Right. And so, yeah, I think we are going to get there with these tools. I think tools are all getting more helpful every year. And the question is, what is the correct way to implement those tools going forward that keeps patient care good, that manages liability, and kind of is OK? And won't shock the job market in ways that destabilize patient care during the transition of that time. I personally would like to see it be AI plus radiologist and kind of bypass the mid level question. I think it's probably the most stable way to handle that. But it may be a little bit of everything, right? I think practically speaking, it's quite possible we're gonna see all solutions at the same time. It's gonna be a hot mess.
1: One solution to the radiologist shortage is skipping a fellowship or shortening training any number of of different ways, you posted a tweet this summer asking who out there have hired or are considering hiring folks straight out of residency training, foregoing fellowship. About 50% of people said they were. 98% of people in the US get a fellowship. So 50% is a pretty high number in that context. I then went and, and showed that tweet at a conference that I spoke at with 40 different private practices, and the results were even more supportive of, yeah, we'll, we'll hire genrads. you know, selfishly modality has been positioning ourselves as, Hey, you know, you can do a lot of on the job training once you're there through online tools. So I'm kind of curious to hear uh, the state of play there. And you wear a few hats for this perspective, being both hiring radiologists and then also advising residents. So you can kind of see folks as they're, you know, considering the various options.
0: So we still have almost every resident do a fellowship. We had one resident the past three years skip out on that. So it's definitely not common in our program. Obviously, most people are still doing them. And in our hiring we're all we're all still hiring only people with the fellowship training. I think when I looked at the responses to that question, it seemed like most people who were hiring people from residency were mostly ER work, right? So they were doing things for kind of a general call shift. Therefore, general radiology makes a lot of sense. The whole idea of an ER fellowship is kind of a weird idea. So I think that hasn't really caught on for obvious reasons. Uh, more time for what benefit kind of situation. And so I think, yeah, if, you're, if you want to be a Telerad or a Nighthawk kind of person, there is an argument for skipping it because that is a general radiology job. And you're not going to be better at doing general radiology after a year of not doing general radiology, right? If you spend a year doing breast imaging, you're not going to be better at reading belly CTs. It just doesn't make any sense. Uh, unless you do a lot of moonlighting. And so I think there is a role for that going forward. But yeah, it seems like overall, it's just not a big common solution to the problem. I think partly it is because Overall, fellowships are forever, even though you only last for a year, you get to say you had one forever. And so for better or worse, that fellowship is an important proxy of quality, which I think is not really very well deserved, but it is what it is, right? People look for that, clinicians want it. Some companies even vet the quality of your group based on how what fraction of work you do is done by people who are so specialized. So there's a whole kind of apparatus promoting this idea, even if it may not be necessarily based on a lot of data. So I do, I do think it becomes important. And again, I think going back to the AI question too, I can see an argument that again, going forward, if you want to be able to quote unquote add value, right? Is you probably have to be extremely good at what you do to be better than what will be out of the box. Um, and certainly right now people are so busy, they've been doing kind of not necessarily the best quality radiology anyway. But I, I think there's potentially a world where people need to be better um, at their jobs. And therefore there's an argument for doing fewer things you can do those things better and so i do think there's probably still an argument fellowship that doesn't like go away in the future if anything it maybe doubles down on how important it is i would like to see residency be be shorter maybe and do fellowship during residency as opposed to it being an extra year i think we probably could trim some fat to solve that problem Um, but i do think going forward that it is important to have skills i will say speaking about modality like i think i would like us to move more towards competency-based assessment, not time. So I think all of medicine has this problem where we view time as a proxy for quality, right? You're training with X number of years. Therefore you are well-trained. You know, neurosurgery is this many years versus medicine is that many years. Like, and I think there is obviously a correlation there, but that's not a great proxy, right? There are some residents who, after a couple of years are as good as an attending. There's some residents that are never as good as an attending. They're, they're just bad radiologists, right? That happens across the country every year, right? We don't allow people to graduate early. It's not a thing. But practically speaking, going forward, I would wish most medicine was more based on how good you are at your job and not how long you were training for, right? I don't really care how long you were in residency for. I care how good you are at what you do, whether you're a psychiatrist or a radiologist. And so I would like to see that going forward. I think the idea of fellowship being this well-defined one-year period after you know, residency ends is kind of an arbitrary way to do it. It's an academic model. There are probably other models out there for proving you know what you're doing that would be helpful in the future. But medicine has not been very willing to consider different paradigms, right? You look at you know pediatrics or specialties and they have a hard time filling right now because most of them are still three-year fellowships, you know, two years of research sometimes. And it's like, you're gonna spend three more years in training to earn, in many cases, less money than you would have as a general pediatrician. That's not a good sales technique. <laughs> Please like, make less money to make less money in the future. It's a hard sale, but they had not been really very willing to fix that problem. Despite that.
1: So we're, you know, I think the trends are changing faster, maybe than you're giving credit, you know, a few examples, prominent program had a two-year neuro fellowship. They asked their rad who is in it, their ads, you know, please end it six months early and just start as an attending. We need you to start working. Another really prominent radiology fellowship had someone who is, uh, did a mini fellowship in Boston Body. And so they said, "Never mind. you can come on as an attending. You did a mini fellowship in body. You're good. And, and this is an academic institution at one of, you know, a top 20 academic institutions. So this is happening out there at everywhere from the highest echelons to, if you think about one of the things that you mentioned with your group size, hundred grads, subspecialize, you know, you can have 25 of each specialty. If you want to combat having to be a hundred people and you want to be 20 people, um, then you have to be multi-specialty, multi-specialist as a radiology group, uh, as each individual. So you know, in our surveys, what we find actually is that on average, people read four or more specialties on an active basis. And they're looking for folks oftentimes who are willing to do that. But what happens is if you did an MSK fellowship, you're looking for a job where you can get to read, you know, I want to read 75, 80 percent. MSK and, and the group is saying, Well, you're willing to read neuro, or you know, well, I wasn't allowed to read any neuro in row, and my residency program, didn't let me. You know, maybe I could do some call, right? But I wouldn't be comfortable doing outpatient spine or brain or, or whatever it is. And so then you actually have this underpreparedness, this gap in what people are looking for out in the workforce that again makes it harder for these small groups to compete. And, and so, to the extent that you want smaller radiology groups that can provide high quality services, I think a rethink is needed. Um, and it's not to say that you can't get super high end subspecialty care when you need it, where you need it, but is that 95%, you know, of what you're seeing or 80% of what you're seeing on a daily basis, or can you be trained enough to know, Hey, you know, this is something I, I need to get a second opinion on. Let me turn that over to the
0: specialist in my group or the, the right place. It's a great, it's a great point. So when I first got in practice, I was doing three um, neuro one fourth body. And so I'd raise a component of that. And certainly I, I do think we've seen some of these trends. I think odd places will treat body like general radiology anyway, you know, body MR is the fellowship, but body is kind of considered general radiology. And then, and then two-year neurofellows actually most places, the second year was a clinical instructor year. We did a lot of research anyway. And so it wasn't uncommon to already be attending in some capacity. So the two-year fellowship going to one year is a very common thing. That's definitely been a trend for the past decade because it was ludicrous to be two years long. But yeah, no, groups do need that. And actually, I think it's one of the draws, one of the pushes for people to be doing all the tele recently. is because a lot of trainees get comfortable doing one thing during fellowship. They don't want to relearn how to do things. They get uncomfortable, like you said. And they they want a job, they're doing 100% whatever. And people don't need that. People don't need 100% MSK in many cases, right? And so then they're saying, oh, I can go do this tele-job where enough work has been amalgamated together to give that person 100% in their fellowship training. And so it, the reality of what a group needs on the ground, what the trainees want are not the same. And then there might be some, you know, corporate backed, you know, private equity conglomerate that is so large that it can offer a job like that because they have the volume to handle it and it, it pushes people towards those jobs, even if they're not inside the best jobs. And so it is a, a real issue. Um, and I do think the trend has been overall towards the specialization but like you said, on the practice, in the ground, most groups cannot offer that all the time, right? When you're doing general call at two in the morning, you don't usually have somebody taking that call. You know, a neuro person, antibody person, it's an MSK person already never happens, right? So that is a reality on the ground is that, you know, there's a trend towards that. But being able to do the work is helpful, Like right? I do joint injections in my practice, right? Like I'm not an MSK radiologist, but I can put something in, in a hip or a shoulder, right? It's not that hard. A lot of folks don't want to do things like that in their practices.
1: Oh, yeah. There's a huge crisis of people that are just willing to do basic procedures, just the basic IR procedures, but there's a whole number of reasons why.
0: Right. and So I do agree with you. It's a it's a big problem.
1: We have a cool partnership with a customer who I think is thinking innovatively on this where they'll they're hiring people out of training and giving them a attending light salary. So call it, you know, 80% of an attending salary and there's three days attending GenRad, and then two days doing specialty learning. And one of the days is on the job sort of, you know, I'm going to read MSK volume then I'm going to get read out by an MSK attendings kind of fellow workflow. And then one day is sort of self-paced, you know, online through modality. So that's how we contribute. Um, it's been a very cool model and then they can kind of piece together both the interests of the trainee. So they might say, hey, I want to do MSK and I want to do prostate or I want to do neuro and I want to learn, you know, one other thing, cardiac, and then kind of piece together their curriculum over the period of 12 or 18 months and, you know, amass the skill sets that they're interested in.
0: It's probably the the right model, honestly, compared to what we actually do, which is that, you know, the academic center has kind of had a monopoly on training. Ironically, in reality, most things aren't even ATG Me accredited, right? So if you do neuroradiology or or IRP, those are part of HGME. If you're MSK or body or any of these things, they're not quote unquote real fellowships, right? They are just fellowships. It's a a year you get paid less to do work. So you're treated as a trainee, but there's not like an actual accreditation requirement for you to be that way. So more groups could have their own fellowships as if somehow you get better training in one environment than the other one. I think the training is whatever it is. Like there are bad fellowships and good fellowships no matter where they're offered. And so I do think there's a, a lot to said for that. Well, in
1: certain academic medical centers, don't get the volume that are representative of the volume, you know, MSK is a a primary example, but most MSK is not happening at the academic medical center. So, you know, some of the MSK fellowships that you could get at a private practice would be much
0: superior to sort of some of the mid tier MSK fellowship programs in the country. And like you said, like, you know, we have these things where people tend to do one year fellowship, right? And there are some places that do, you know, half year breast, half year whatever, and they'll do a combination thing, because again, it's not ACT me so they can, but ironically enough, like, would it not be more helpful to somebody to do some kind of accredited mini fellowships or probably actually more helpful in many cases than doing one fellowship? It's just not the model people have done because academics is academics.
1: Yeah. Well, and then, uh, kind of hitting the bingo card on fun radiology topics. So you, you touched on a little bit, the size and scale of some of the corporate groups remind me, what is, what is it in Texas in Texas? There isn't the ability for, you know, Corporatization of of radiology, or it still can. Talk me through what's different about Texas, if anything. And then talk me through generally why is it better that your group is physician owned as opposed to money
0: owned? Sure. So in Texas, there's a law forbidding what they call the corporate practice of medicine, which is just basically that a corporation can't directly employ doctors. So if you work at a hospital, for example, in, in Texas, the hospital does not employ you. The hospital will have a physician group that employs you. So I work at Baylor sometimes. Baylor, for example, is a big. Nonprofit health center, right? But all the doctors who work at Baylor are actually employed by a group called Health Texas Physician Network, right? Or Provider Network, I think, either way, HTPN. So they are functionally speaking at another nonprofit, but it's just, it's not the hospital itself. So there's a huge loophole. So it doesn't actually work. Is it
1: just in name only?
0: Essentially. So, I mean, it just makes things a little bit harder, right? A little bit more um, hoops to jump through, but it doesn't actually change anything. And when um, a private equity company, for example, or a, a big company buys a group, that group still exists. And so, even though the PE firm controls the group, the group still exists as its own entity, and therefore it's not corporate practice medicine because the group is still the group. So the law obviously was intended to prevent all these things from happening, but the law is not actually preventing any of those things from happening. They have still happen. So the same thing is true in, in California. But yeah, it's just, that is the idea behind, there was a feeling that, you know, when corporations get involved, right, that there is a, a third party, you know, inserting themselves in the documentation relationship. And that can only lead to certain kinds of inefficiencies because there's a set, there's a vested interest in, either things costing more or paying doctors less or just any kind of, you know, extraneous influence essentially, right? And so that's why the laws were created. They just don't really work. You now, as to why I think it's good to be independent, I think that is largely why it could be independent is that, you know, there are obviously services that a company can provide a independent practice that may be hard for the practice to use themselves. And so there certainly is an argument, especially for a small practice to sell in some cases, but ultimately, right. There's no um, free lunch in healthcare, right. As a radiologist, you get paid for, for reading studies, right? Yes. How you generate income. And so when you are sold to another group or you're employed by a third party, now you're not being paid based on your work. You're being paid based on what they value your work at. And there is a third party taking some money off the top. So if you're in academics, that's how academics works, right? You pay for research by paying radiologists less money than they actually generate. That's how academics works. Not just a benefit to that. You're, you believe in the mission. You get to teach students, that kind of stuff. In private practice, if you do that, there is no mission that you're part of when you sell, right? You t- typically get money up front or the group gets money up front. In exchange for less money in the long term, so there's like usually a generational, you know, gap in who benefits from that sale, and then there's a third party who influences decisions going forward, and that can be, in some cases, probably pretty benign, and in some cases, pretty bad. And I think you know anyone who's talking smack about it, I think needs to realize that, you know, myself included, obviously, that there are a broad spectrum of, of buyouts and owners and and reactions to those sales, and some of them are far worse than others.
1: So I think that the thing that I I I agree with part and then I I question part. So the part that I agree with is that radiology is a low margin business and it's getting lower margin. We talked about the shortage. We talked about, so, okay, what's that doing? That's pushing salaries up, a lot more mobile. Okay. So salaries are going up. Reimbursements are going down. You've squeezed as much as you can out of it. And so, okay, it's a low margin business. In a low margin business, you don't want to have another mouth to feed. It's hard to have enough money to you know, pay the people, pay the rising technology and billing costs, and you know have enough left over to pay out the investors or service the debt. So that argument I buy. I think the part that I struggle with a little bit is um, one of the benefits I could imagine of a practice that is centrally owned is better decision making. So um, if I've got a large company. I can make good decisions. Uh, you know, I can buy the best equipment. I can buy the best technology. I can negotiate the best contracts. Like I kind of believe in that a little bit. I guess I struggle to figure out why a 100 person group that's a private practice versus a 100 person group that is PE owned and maybe has a more call it traditional CEO COO kind of org chart versus a partnership of a hundred, which to me feels like, I don't know how you would even get anything done. I can't get, you know, my extended family is a family of eight and getting us to figure out where to go for dinner is like an impossible task. So getting a hundred doctors to make decisions swiftly in a very very dynamic and intense market, I don't, it's not obvious to me that the private practice model would perform better than
0: the private equity model. Yeah, I mean, I think for one, I do think that, Practices do struggle at that size for that reason. Um, I think most tend to have a board of directors that does strategy, right? So they're not having all the partners involved in day to day decision making that would not be feasible. As to whether or not one's better than the other, I think one of the issues is if the PE firm or the owner or whatever has the same incentives and alignment as the group, then it probably would be effective. The question is, how often is that the case that the people who are owning it want the same things and the same goals? as the physicians is providing the services and historically it seems to be that that's generally speaking not always the case right that people do want to make money for investors in ways that potentially are short-term horizons that are not good for long-term health of the practice for example and so yeah if, if the person was like i'm going to sell a group and in exchange i'm going to get most of the cost of my decrease in reimbursement actually is going to go to more efficient billing better hr you know Cheaper IT costs because I have a bigger program, and therefore I'm actually not losing much money because most of it's going to better contracts for all the backend services. Then you're going to win, and I think some people actually have sold practices and won that way. I think if you're a small, you know, ten percent group, I've heard of people who have sold and been pretty happy. I've also unfortunately heard most people who have sold and they thought they were going to get those things: better decision making, help on the ground, backend support, and ultimately, I think in the reality is that it's all hard. It's all low margin and the way to make money for your investors, unfortunately it's really hard to do without shortchanging the actual job. And so I think in a lot of cases, people I speak to is that in theory, it should all work, but in practice, it's still hard. Right. And some of it has to do with debt, right. You know, Twitter, us, Sears, that kind of stuff too. But some of it, I think it is just operationally, you know, when you're a big company nationwide, coast to coast, a lot of medicines are very local. It's local relationships. It's a lot of local stuff and, when people are asked to do things or take sacrifices or work harder or any kind of negative thing for a distant, remote third party as opposed to for their partners that they believe in, that they know personally, it's a very different ask. And you change a group from a group a team culture to a kind of plug and play culture, like a, you know, clock in clock out. And I think a lot of reality practices just don't function that way. They're not healthy that way. And when they turn that way, they fall apart. But absolutely. I think there is an argument there. I mean, there's definitely an argument that it could work. It just seems to be not working out so well. So crystal ball, 10 years
1: from now, what's going on? Is it the same story and like, basically nothing's changed? Maybe asked a different way. The percent of radiologists employed by private equity owned practices
0: grows, stays the same or goes down 2033. So that is very challenging. You know, I would hate for anyone to think that I think that I know what's going to happen I'm not a, a prognosticator. my crystal ball is very cloudy if I had to guess I think the number will be a decrease in private equity owned companies and groups probably not by a ton but by some I think the bigger I think the question then becomes when the, some of those groups do fail uh, and I think some of them you know certainly will when radiologists go to work after that in that aftermath are they going to go work for the hospital are they gonna get folded into a different pe type group or different corporate entity or start new power practices and that to me i actually have no idea i don't know i think i think it's me a lot of everything i think in certain geographies you're going to see groups reform and be independent again and learn their lesson quote unquote and and start over i think some hospitals probably will have enough clout to just employ radiologists themselves potentially even fighting on competes and i think some people probably get folded into a different or a adjusted pe entity going forward so I think all those things will probably happen. So I think in many ways it may look similar. My guess is how some it will pay out depending a little bit on the mid-level and AI question too, in that if a company can replace radiologists with other tools, whether it's a person or a, or a tool, and then they need less warm bodies, that model becomes more profitable potentially very quickly. Right now it's not doing super well, right? We had like two bankruptcies this year, maybe one more coming next year, <laughs> hard to say. And so it's not working right now. Labor costs are too high and the market's too tight. If there's a big change three or four years from now, five years from now in other some of these other services, then it's possible that what was right now not making a lot of money and can't service its debt might be profitable again in the future, right? So I think it's very hard to say.
1: So um, listeners can tell that you and I could probably talk for 10 hours on all things radiology. So what what else is on your mind before we we wrap up that we haven't hit?
0: You know it's funny one of the things that's been on my mind a fair bit recently you know working with my with my residents and writing on the site is i think the ai question for me has raised a lot of questions about what it is is quality right it's big a big nebulous annoying question of radiology right value-based care is like very hard to do i'm thinking a lot about if i'm good at my job what makes me good at my job right you know and i think a lot about the the communication and the style of my reporting and when i work with my residents you know their approach to how they marshal their attention, their attention to detail, how they look at the histories and the priors. And, you know, you get paid the same for doing a bad job and a good job, ultimately. And so there's an incentive in a very cynical world to just do a lot of really shoddy work, at least in the current market. But I, I think a lot about the approach to doing what we do deliberately. And I think a lot about, you know, deliberate practice of radiology. I think what makes me like my job, what makes me want to keep doing it, makes me want to get better at it, is that part of it? Is that kind of soft, kind of somewhat pedantic and irritating approach? But like, I feel like a lot about the current discussion about AI tools and mid-levels and the shortage gets lost on like the reality that I think we've seen a, a kind of fall in quality in some situations because of the shortage, because of the volumes. And the worse we get at our jobs, the more replaceable we all are in doing that job because the delta between me and someone who's not as good as I am gets really small if I do a bad job, right? So if I have to do my best job possible to actually make myself irreplaceable, and I think that part of the discussion has been lost a fair bit, and I think that's really important. I think about that a lot.
1: Yeah, I agree with everything you just said, and I think the only thing I'd add to that is as I watch my wife you know, now trying to keep up high volumes in a private practice setting, when to her sort of eyes light up that I see. we Our desks are across from each other when we're home working after we put the kids down. And uh, it's when she she sees something and she knows what's going on with the patient. And she is very concerned that the physicians are about to send this person, or not in many cases, the nurse, you know, that they came to see at the hospital is about to send this person down a bad path. And she's, you know, gets them on the phone and, you know, talks through with them. You know, that's an irreplaceable expertise, at least what I, from what I can tell right now. And, you know, you can hear the surprise often in the doctor on the other side's voice. Oh my, okay, wow. Yeah, you know, this patient did say these three things. Wow, okay, like, you're right. Thanks for the call, doctor. And And I know that's like so cliche, but it happens like so much more than I thought. I thought that was like a once a, a quarter thing. And it's like three times a night thing. And she's not even in an ER practice or anything like that.
0: I think that touched on something really important, which is that I think one of the reasons why people can get cynical about radiology is because typically you don't get feedback from people. You just read the cases, make a report, they go off into the ether, never hear back. You hear about your misses, but you never hear about stuff most of the time. And so sometimes you forget that what you do matters. Sometimes it doesn't feel real. And so I think those moments when you do change management and you see like when everything changes it hinges on you it probably happens more than you think it does but you just didn't realize it but when you see it happen when you call somebody on the phone and you have a conversation and like you saw their mind explode right it's like a, it's a meme gif of like an animated gif of like things happening and you're like this is why i'm doing it and those moments i think are absolutely critical to making you like you know reapply yourself to the craft it's super important and it's it's you know to what makes this part job can be joyful
1: yeah well, uh, final question we always ask on the show that you might've answered it right there is what advice do you have for the young radiologists entering the field today? You can't uh, use the same answer, so you have to give a new one.
0: My answer to that is that I think predictions are useless in general. I think the future is unknown. So I think instead of trying to figure out what's gonna happen in radiology five years away, 10 years away, is figure out what your ideal life looks like, what radiology for you sparks joy, how you're gonna feel, cliche, right? you know, how you see yourself as a radiologist and build your life around that career that you want to have. Live reasonably so you can save some money, right? So don't don't grow into your intending income, but try to take it to a place where you're going to be okay no matter what happens in the future. So don't wait for things to become happy, right? Don't, no rival fallacy. Don't wait to be happy until something X happens in your life. Don't do that. So it's in between YOLO and FOMO, right? Like find that balance. And once you decide what you want, do it. Observe, orient, decide, right? And then act again. So just see what you want, build your life that way. If it's not working out, change it. But I, I caution you against making decisions because of like the fear of the future, but also caution you against ignoring the future, right? Just do your best to be okay no matter what happens.
1: Ben White, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report Podcast. Be sure to visit us at theradiologyreportpodcast.com Or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.